Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, connecting technology to end users at the Department of Veterans Affairs and the solution to agency hopping for the workplace of the future. It's Monday, August 8th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Office of Personnel Management could get a deputy director for the first time in a year and a half. Rob Shriver is the associate director for employee services at the agency now. He was deputy general counsel for policy in the Obama administration. Jason Gray is headed to USAID to be the chief information officer. He's been the CIO at the Education Department for the last six years. He'll start at aid next Monday. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 2022 edition of Fed Talks is less than three weeks away now. The federal CIO Claire Martirana and the DOD CIO John Sherman are just two of the high-level leaders in government, industry, and academia that you'll see there August 24th. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a new official in its Electronic Health Records Program Office. Dr. David Massaro is functional champion of the EHR program. Mark Foreman's executive vice president at Dynamic Integrated Services. He's former EGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget. Mark, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. My colleague, John Hewitt-Jones, writes at fedscoop.com. Dr. Massaro will work as the clinical executive representing the Veterans Health Administration and will lead functional initiatives to support the department's medical personnel. This sounds to me like it's in response to some of the challenges that they've had in implementation at some of their deployment centers. What should structure look like as far as reaching the end user at the beginning of an important program like this, do you think? Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Francis, for having me. Well, in these major programs, um, I, I certainly have seen this over, over my career, whether it's a IT system or a major weapon system, the requirements ultimately have to be owned by the user and the user has to get what they need to do their job better. Ideally, the, these investments are all supposed to give you as a user the ability to, to be more productive. So having somebody on the functional side involved from the beginning, as you say, is, is I think a key element of success, especially on these major IT programs or major uh, capital programs, as I say, even for weapon systems. And back in the era of acquisition reform in the Defense Department, this issue kept coming up. Um, they went through something very similar through what VA will have to go through on this system where during the acquisition phase, you typically have your IT organization that has the program managers that has much more experience on the IT side running the program. Once it's fielded and it shifts over to the O&M side, in IT, we have this concept of a system owner. And a system owner for a mission program is always somebody on the functional side. So when the Defense Department did a lot of research on this, that they articulated something that they call a program management responsibility transfer. And they said, basically, um, you can't just throw it over the wall. And we know this as well in IT programs. The throw it over the wall model is uh, typically, let's just say, a high risk proposition. So having somebody early on 
you know, I tend to think exactly as you said, it ought to be at the beginning that uh, they're a deputy program manager, call them the functional executive, but they basically own the requirement and they own the oversight for making sure that what the technologists are doing delivers on the, that workflow, that productivity, that user side of the requirement. So based on what you're saying, it sounds like the ideal structure, if we're going to compare it to the Defense Department, which I think is an apt one, because this is just as big and complicated and, and frankly expensive as some of the major weapon systems that we've seen developed over time. One of the big changes in the acquisition reform that you described in DOD has been that that handoff, when it goes to the, the functional piece, that becomes the chief of staff of the service that, that has the final sign off on whether something moves to the next phase and so on. So it strikes me that to use that analogy, if the requirements are owned by the user, this should be, as this person is, located inside VHA and not necessarily located inside OCIO for the life of the program. Am I, am I going the right track there, Mark? Absolutely. Yeah, this is a mission program. And so the, the mission of the agency needs to own these types of uh, system requirements because ultimately they'll be the system owner. My colleague, John Hewitt-Jones writes, VA Undersecretary for Health, Dr. Sharif El-Nahal announced the appointment. Um, that means that that looks like the structure that VA is undertaking here, that the, the Veterans Health Administration is determining how they're going to move forward and how they're going to oversee, how they're going to implement, how they're going to make sure that their end users are equipped to, to deliver this EHR. Right. With the voice day-to-day -day involved in that program, the voice of the user, all the way up to the leadership level. You know, in these major IT programs, we went through a period over the last 15 years or so where so much of the IT workflow was controls implementation. And it oftentimes constrained the people in the field. People in the field need their voice heard at the top so that the workflow enables better productivity, not just constraints. If you don't have somebody like this at the leadership level, Oftentimes what happens is uh, you, you get a workflow implemented that reflects an audit report and you deprioritize the requirements of the field. I think this structure the VA is implementing done right raises the voice of the people in the field and their priorities get addressed. That's really important to the success of a major program like this. What's the right role for overseers in this? I mean, it strikes me that we're... I think we're five or six, maybe we're, maybe it's too far. Maybe my memory's not as good as I think, but it, I think we're five or six years into this EHR deployment from the very beginning, from the writing requirements, the awarding of the contract and all of that stuff. And so I'm wondering, uh, we just saw recently the House Veterans Affairs Committee, members on both sides of the aisle are very unhappy about the way this program is going. One of the Republican members suggested that they pull the plug, which I'm not sure at this point really would accomplish much because you got to have something to replace VISTA at some point. Uh, my understanding is that VA is starting to uh, wind VISTA down wherever it can, however it can, because uh, they don't want to be paying for that forever either. Um, what's the role of Congress? What's the role of OMB? What's the role of GAO? What's the role of the inspector general at uh, VA to continue to oversee this 
And, and in the future, what's the role of all those overseers to oversee these from the beginning so that these structures exist correctly from the beginning, Mark? Well, uh, at the beginning, I think this all starts with a business case. As you know, I'm a big fan of uh, a decent set of requirements, strategic criteria, feeding the analysis of alternatives. I think there was some weak articulation of the business case and specifically around the uh, accountability and performance metrics. So Congress passed legislation, bipartisan, as you said, asking for clear articulation and reporting on the performance metrics. I think Congress and the overseers on that side are paying the bills. They ought to make sure that the outcomes are achieved. Now, we used to track that on the basis of cost schedule and are you hitting your milestones? I think we've learned over the last 10 years that there's a lot better way to do this. Uh, a lot of people have read John Doerr's book, Measure What Matters. I actually like a, a different variant of it called Radical Focus by Christina Wadke. But this OKR method, objectives and key results, is a way to take a look at what is actually being accomplished in terms of outcomes. So I think that that's one of the things that needs to be applied here is this OKR objectives and key results method that Silicon Valley uses for similar large capital investments or IT investments that they support. The other thing is, I think this point in the program, you need a really solid risk management plan. And uh, I think it's incumbent on OMB to, to ask and to be able to evaluate the risk management plan. Um, this involves more than the traditional risk register that you'd have in, in a normal project. They need to understand the triggers, uh, how to respond to risk as they inevitably materialize. They need to have done the simulation modeling on the work breakdown structure and the rollout, uh, all of which you do for large scale programs, whether it's a weapon system or major IT program in the best practices. So I think that's where OMB's got to sit in is overseeing the business case, and making sure the return on investment is there. And the best way to do that at this point is have a, a really solid risk management plan. I'm not going to ask you to speculate on the challenges that VA has undertaken, but I will ask you this. I know your affinity for oversight and for conducting oversight. The Defense Department's military health system has had a number of successful deployments of the Genesis system across its uh, facilities. The Coast Guard says that it's finished with its deployment. I understand the Coast Guard is much smaller than DOD and VA. But we have not seen as a community the reports of the challenges in those two entities that we've seen in VA. So I wonder where you would start to look to see whether those challenges existed and they didn't become as publicized as the VA challenges have become, or if DOD did something differently than the VA has done, or if their system works differently, because my understanding was the whole point of it was the systems were supposed to be at least very similar, if not the same. And so I wonder where did DOD go at least okay, or did they not? And VA has had the challenges that it's had, Mark. Yeah, I, I'm just not that familiar with the, the DOD side, um, although what I suspect at the heart of the issue is the robust nature of VISTA and how that's built up as not just a health record system, but a workflow system. It's got a lot of automated processes, 
uh, quality checks and quality controls and healthcare in there. And I think that's one of the things that makes it difficult in VA because uh, the system, the Cerner system just doesn't have that robust breadth of functionality on the workflow side. Um, I think that's what's come out in the IG reports for VA. I just don't know that uh, DOD has that similar scenario. Well, and but not knowing is helpful because that helps folks to understand what we need to look at, maybe to understand the differences and the challenges that exist. Mark Foreman, it's great insight as always, my friend. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Thank you, Francis. Appreciate it. You can read more about the changes to the VA EHR structure in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton, Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup of stars and sign up through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The current Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey is in the compilation phase now. The second wave of agencies had a six-week window to respond starting June 6th. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. This is butt up against the 2021 Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that we're just still kind of analyzing the results from. Do you think that makes a difference in what we'll see in the 22 survey based on some of the observations that you've made about 2021 already? Welcome. Thank you so much. I think it could, Francis. Honestly, I mean, you know, they were there were struggles with participation rates in the last one, and because of the nature of the changes that were made in 2021, I think you know folks really don't know what to expect necessarily. I'm hopeful that you know if leadership has been messaging it properly, that the workforce knew that their voice matters and really counts, especially in the areas of preferences around you know telework, hybrid work, remote work back to office communication strategies and how their teams have been operating overall. So incredibly important. And I know we're going to be able to be able to really actually delineate similarities and differences in contrast that we weren't able to between 20 and 21 because of those changes initially. The director of OPM, Kieran Ahuja, used a term a couple of weeks ago that I think really well defines what you and I have talked about. Really, even before the pandemic, we were talking about this, Mika. She used the term agency hopping. And employees are voting with their feet about the flexibility policies that individual agencies have. The problem that I think the government as a whole is up against is that they have congressional overseers that may or may not be as amenable to the idea of those workplace flexibilities as agencies and especially the employees would like them to be. What's the potential conflict there over the next year or two, especially if Congress changes and some of these flexibilities make it really difficult for agencies to keep people. I think people really need to open their eyes. You know, we've been talking about things in different categories, like, oh, the retirement tsunami wave that has been anticipated for five or 10 years now and continues to be repeated, or, you know, the challenges with human capital areas that GAO cites on their high risk list again and again and again, challenges to the hiring and recruitment process, DEI issues. And then, of course, then over here you have engagement and work life issues. Put the pieces together. If you look at the rates of indicators of those feds who are saying they indicate they are going to leave 
within the next year even, between 20 and 2021, there's a 1% increase in those rates. 30% of those who took the FEVS in 2021 indicate they're going to leave for some reason. Could you stand to lose 30% of your workforce or your team and then not be able to hire efficiently and quickly um, and also the right skill set behind them? There is a direct correlation. And I don't think, you know, our OPM director could have said it any more brilliantly, but she keeps emphasizing the fact that there is a correlation between increased rates of telework, remote work, hybrid work, other flexibilities and intent to stay. This is going to be a real problem for those agencies who are hovering around 45 and 46 percent retirement eligible for their whole workforce. Then you compound it with 30 percent of your workforce who are intending to leave and those who are agency hopping, as well as leaving the federal government altogether and the inability to recruit and attract and hire uh, early career talent. Good luck. Yeah, you pointed out a couple of numbers here. You flagged a few things that I thought were interesting. Um, from the best places to work in the federal government numbers from the partnership. Positive score at 63 points for uh, plans to return to the office. That's not necessarily a reflection the way I read it in the partnership's work on the plan, do we come back this many days or whatever. It's It struck me that it, that's a reflection on the way that the agencies have communicated their plans to come back to the office. Am I reading it wrong? No, I think you're reading it right. In fact, you know, there is a strong correlation in engagement dips for those organizations who are still kind of uncertain and not rolling out definitive policies or at least even just guidance around will there or will there not be a remote work or hybrid work policy moving forward. So it's that gray area of uncertainty that's really affecting engagement scores overall. And the better you communicate it, whether it's at your direct manager, supervisor level, or the agency at large, the better people feel trust around they're going to be taken care of, they're going to have, they're going to be listened to, and they're going to have some options. It doesn't mean necessarily that we have to, you know, uh, agree with every preference that an employee has with regards to how they want to work. But what we do need to do is listen and respond and let people know that we're paying attention to these scores and these indicators and checking in with them in different ways as well. So for the agencies that are doing well and communicating what to expect in this area of uncertainty, the higher the scores are going to be in confidence on that in that area that you just mentioned versus, you know, the other side of the house. And then you have agencies that are still looking to redesign their workspaces without policies in place that correspond with that. Consider what that feels like if you were hired during the pandemic and are an early careerist, came to, into the organization in either 2020, 21 or 22 and already had to, you know, purchase a house, find housing, you're fresh out of college, maybe you didn't relocate to the DC area. I mean, there are going to be some significant impacts, Francis, to, to the way that we're working here. Well, and yet compare that number to some of the demographic trends in the work that the partnership did recently about who's leaving and, and why they're leaving. And um, attrition rate for GS one to four employees, 14 and a half percent attrition rate for GS five to seven employees, 8.7 percent. The government wide average, 6.1. So you're right. I can see for those early career people there'd be a tremendous amount of confusion and churn there that would make people go, I'm just going to go in a different direction. 
For sure. And then, you know, consider the rates of decline in the federal student interns who were hired in the last eight years. We went from 35,000 hired in 2010 to 4,000 hired in 2018. And in mission critical occupations like IT, even HR, auditors, contract specialists, <laughs> those numbers of rates of federal workers under the age of 30 are at critical mass. Like in IT, there's only 2.8% under the age of 30 versus 52.5% over the age of 50. The math adds up. If anyone's paying attention, this is going to be a perfect storm. All right. What do we do now to try to address that storm, Mika? I mean, we've talked around this for a long, not you and I, but as a community, we've talked around this for a long time. And then when we still find ourselves where we find ourselves today. All right. LinkedIn Global Talent Trends just issued its 2022 report, I think late May, uh, maybe March. Um, But what it indicates is that work-life balance trumps bank balance. It does. It matters more to job seekers on the market right now that they have choice and work schedule flexibility. So I don't mean only remote options or telework options or hybrid options, because we all know that doesn't work for everyone. In fact, it only works for about 30 to 45 percent of the American workforce. What does matter is the ability to choose and opt into different work schedules. This matters for your frontline healthcare workers, from your IT and cyber specialists, your intelligence analysts. I mean, anyone who has a life knows that sometimes nine to five doesn't really work for most white collar workers. So being able to leverage the different kinds of work flexibility, again, not just remote telework and hybrid, to your advantage. Unhiding your flex in your position descriptions, talking about what you can offer in an interview, making it sure that you are unhiding your flex. So flex that flex, right? For federal agencies, that's going to be a game changer and you're going to be able to attract talent in new and different ways. What would you like to see the agencies do policy wise, though? It sounds like the most important thing they can do is set and then enforce is too strong a word, but stick to whatever policy it is that they set out there. So at least there is a little bit more certainty for the rank and file employee. Yeah. And I think you and I have talked about this piece before, but a couple of recommendations that I have and I made to Congress before as well is to, you know, mandate that positions who were operating in this mode, whether fully remote all day, every day or heightened telework, increased telework and did so with a successful performance rating that was that position is now coded eligible for telework and remote work, meaning they can perform some of the functions of their job successfully, stop trying to put other kinds of qualifying factors into whether or not a position is eligible or not eligible. Nearly 60% of the federal workforce was working fully remote during the height of the pandemic. So 60% of those positions are in fact eligible for it. The next piece is to start holding managers accountable because time and time again in the congressional reports around federal telework trends and GAO's reports on recommendations to Congress, it's management resistance that matters most. So hold managers accountable for making the right kinds of decisions. If a position is eligible, if a position is um, fully performing successfully, if there are no infractions that go against the Telework Enhancement Act, then you should be approving a telework or remote work arrangement unless you can prove other that it has a negative effect. And then invest in those skills. We need new and different leadership skills to get outside of our mindset biases around location bias, 
proximity bias, distance bias, to make an equitable workforce that opts into all kinds of flexibilities. Take a page out of GSA. They're great. You know, Tracy Martini, Martini. you know, she, she has the secret sauce over there at GSA. They've been doing this a long, long time. And then, yes, there may be different ways that you're going to be utilizing space and finding ways to come together for a purpose and a reason. But these are the ingredients to a successful, high-performing, and engaged workforce. And the federal government is the nation's largest employer. we got to set the example. So I want to connect a data point that you just laid out there to one that you flagged for me uh, in the email that you sent me yesterday. You said during the height of the uh, pandemic, 60% of the federal workforce was working entirely remotely, entirely telework. In the email that you sent me, the FEVs last year in November 2021, 36.2% compared with 47.3% just a few months previously. For advocates of full telework and remote work, it's going in exactly the wrong direction, isn't it? Yeah, in fact, there was already an 11% jump in terms of who self-identified on the FEVs as working fully remotely compared from 2020 to 2021. So those are, you know, there's discrepancy in the data mm-hmm. points there because you have how agencies are reporting coding time versus how I the uh, FEVs participants are self-identifying as participating. But what I can tell you is there's an 11% drop and that drop correlates with the drop in dips in engagement overall. And so again, I don't think we can voice this enough. The problem is we need to hold people accountable for doing business differently and achieving the right kinds of results. That's on an individual basis, on a team basis, and on an organizational basis. And that requires skills, strengthening success skills and competencies in different areas. So you can equip your leaders to lead across distance, regardless of location. Mika Cross, I never have to worry about you being passionate and enthusiastic about what you have to say when you come on this program. It's great to see you, my friend. You make it easy, Francis. Thank you. You can read more about the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey data in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.